And open those Bibles up to 1 Corinthians. It's a special day today because we're starting a new book. <clears throat> Paul wrote the book of 1 Corinthians to the church in Corinth from Ephesus. As we read through the book, we're going to see the power of the gospel, the power of the cross, the power that God uses. Power, power, power in this first chapter and in the second chapter, uh, I want to give you a task of underlining and circling the word power. Uh, we're going to read of the contrast between wisdom of this world, of this age, of man's minds and devices, and contrasted with the wisdom of heaven, the wisdom of the Lord and his divinity, the wisdom that he's revealed to us in the written word, the scriptures. We're going to see in the book of 1 Corinthians uh, exhortations towards unity and against division. We're going to see a call to service in the church, to be faithful stewards, a call to purity, and to run from every form of immorality. We're called to be disciples, and in that comes discipline in the book of 1 Corinthians. We see how to handle conflict in this book, how to handle conflict in marriage. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we're going to see a lot of deep truths, God's perspective on marriage and divorce. Love and liberties, chapter 8. We're going to read on communion. The gospel will be prevalent in this book. We'll read about spiritual gifts, what they are specifically, and how to use them decently and in order within the church. We're going to read of love and love and a little bit more love as the love chapter is in this book. I was at a park yesterday and someone at the park was like, isn't the love chapter in 2 Corinthians 14? I'm like, close, 1 Corinthians 13. And we're going to dive into that in about 13 to 30 weeks. Um, <laughs> Chapter 15 is one of my favorites, the resurrection, its truth, and the promises and the power that it brings. And so as we're here in this new book, uh, for the sake of time, we're not going to read through the whole chapter standing up like we did first service. I learned a lesson last service. You guys, always, you're, you're the people that come in here and I've learned lessons and I don't do that again, okay? That's, I, that's hey, who said that? The worship team said that. You're here for both services, Okay. Let's pray before we dig in. <clears throat> Lord, we believe this is your word. That means something. That means a lot that, that you've breathed out um, yourself onto these pages. You've revealed yourself to us. And Lord, 1 Corinthians is no exception. Lord, would you prepare our hearts as a church for all that you want to do in the weeks to come? Lord, that you would preach the gospel to us in power. And Lord, that you would help us to obey the gospel believe the gospel and live out the gospel. Lord, today, as there's much to be said in this chapter and we'll focus specifically on a, on a section of it, would you bring your word and power to us and encourage our church to be all that you want us to be? Lord, as chapter two says, the words that I speak aren't persuasive and wisdom in and of themselves, but they're in demonstration of the Holy Spirit and of power. And let that be the case today as well. For your glory, God, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Verse one, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. 
All right, so already we're going we're gonna to find out a little about Sosthenes. We're going to find a little about the history of Corinth. If you'll take your Bibles and flip back two books to the book of Acts, chapter 18, we have Luke the historian's account of how this church in Corinth was birthed. Okay, uh, Paul had just left Athens, we see in Acts chapter 18, verse 1, and he went down to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius who'd recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and in verse 3, because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they'd opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius, Justice, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I've made, I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. When Galio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Galio said to them, if you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he drove them off. Then the crowd there turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the proconsul, and Galileo showed no concern whatever, so Paul still remained a good while. Then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria, and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. So a little bit of the history of Corinth. In the next chapter, we'll see Apollos goes and ministers in the town. But how awesome to read of Paul. He goes, and daily he would preach the gospel to the Jews in the synagogue. He'd open up his mouth and he would reason with them about the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. And they didn't like that. And they, they rebelled and they resisted him. And so he just, he kicked the dust off of himself. He shook off his garments and said, your blood is on your own hands. I'm innocent. I'm going to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, as God had called me to. They'll hear. And he just goes next door to uh, Justice's house. And uh, has a little Bible study going on there. And the synagogue leader, Crispus, gets saved. And these are all names. We're actually going to read a lot of these names in this chapter this morning. We've got Crispus. Paul says he baptized him. Paul's writing this letter right now by Sosthenes. Sosthenes then became the next synagogue leader who uh, opposed Paul, took Paul before the Supreme Court of the day, and said, could you kick this guy out of our town? He is just causing all kinds of trouble. We're sick of his message. Either kill him or get him out of here. And Galileo said, I've got nothing to do with this. You guys deal with it yourselves. And he kicked them out, and he drove them out of the Supreme Court of the day. And, uh, and the Jews did not appreciate that humiliation. So they all turned on Sosthenes and beat him up. 
I mean, this is drama. I mean, they need to make a made-for-TV movie out of this, you know, starring Robert Nero and Joe Pesci, right? They would be great. And Macaulay Culkin, because I just watched Home Alone, and they all go together, I think. But Sosthenes, the last time we saw Sosthenes, he's like laying on the ground with a little twitch, you know, after he just got beat by the sandals of a thousand Jews, okay? And the next thing we know, we're reading verse 1, chapter 1, 1 Corinthians. He's writing a letter with the Apostle Paul, declaring the gospel and the power of Christ and the cross. What do you think happened? Well, a little, little birdie told me last night that Sosthenes was convicted by the Holy Spirit. It was the Holy Spirit that drew him to Christ, and he was born again. He acknowledges sin before God and he receives salvation that came from the very one he was persecuting, just like Paul did. Remember when Paul was the Sosthenes of his day, beating up Christians and dragging them before the judgment seat? And then he met Jesus and was transformed to be a whole different guy with a new name, Paul. So that's what we see happening here. And we see that kind of revival happening all throughout Corinth. So that next door to the synagogue, you've got justice who gets saved. You've got Crispus who gets saved. You get Sosthenes who gets saved. And a revival takes place there in Corinth. Now, real quick, a little bit about this city, Corinth. Corinth was a city placed on an isthmus, if you will, between northern Greece and southern Greece. Cue the map, please. Uh, what we have is northern Greece uh, with uh, uh, two seas below it. And between the two seas is this uh, isthmus, that is Corinth. So northern Greece, where it says Greece. Thank you, Google Images, for this incredible um, visual display here. Uh, northern Greece. Uh, Achaia is the southern Greece region. Uh, you've got two different seas, uh, the Aegean, and I'm, I'm blanking on the other one. It starts with an I. Uh, two different seas, one on the uh, west, one on the east. And then you've got Corinth. Now, Corinth was a, a huge city, about 400,000 people at the time of Paul. And uh, what made it huge what it, was it was this harbor city. It was a city where sailors would come and take their vacation and take their leave and boats would come and park. And what they would do was a lot of times ships would be coming in from the east on the sea and to the east and, uh, and they would need to get cargo to the sea on the west. And how would they do that? they would offload all of their cargo in Corinth and then transport it by cart some four miles across that isthmus, if you will, uh, and then load it onto another ship. If their ship was small enough, they'd pull it up out of the water and roll it across that little uh, piece of land. Caesar Nero tried to create a canal. Uh, it was un. Un, uh, it, it was unsuccessful, and, uh, and so what would happen was you've got sailors, you've got people from all over the world coming, and they would all conglomerate there in Corinth, and that would bring, hey, you got sailors, so what do you got with sailors? Beep, beep, beep. Okay, you got sin, you got cussing, you got uh, immorality, you've got sexual immorality, uh, you've got religions from every part of the world coming, pagan religions, anti-God, anti-Yahweh religions. And that would bring with it all forms of, of perversion and immorality. In fact, it's there in Corinth on an Acropolis in the middle of the city that uh, there was a, a, a huge temple uh, dedicated to goddess, uh, the goddess Diana. Uh, and our 
Artemis and just this sexual goddess where uh, a thousand temple prostitutes at a time were, were employed there 24-7, where just debauchery and sexual immorality and worship in that form would take place. And so uh, because it was such a rich city, uh, because there were so many people there, uh, it bred all kind. It was a cesspool of sin and depravity. It was certainly a wicked, wicked place. Corinth hosted uh, the Ithmian Games. Uh, it was second in size only to the Olympic Games. And so that brought in a huge mass of people. Corinth was very popular because it was attached to Greece. It was close to Athens. And so uh, words and phrases like, if you speak like a Corinthian, uh, it meant that you were very eloquent and you were like a philosopher. But if you acted like a Corinthian, it meant that you had no morals or loose morals at best, and you were a wicked, filthy person. In fact, even in America, you probably heard the term, she was a Corinthian girl. And uh, no, nobody? Okay, um, it's out there. (laughs) Isn't it like Bob Dylan or something wrote a song about the Corinthian girl? Um, I don't know. Uh, Corinthian girl meant, you know, an immoral woman or a prostitute or a harlot. And, uh, and so philosophers were popular. People that loved knowledge were popular. They would come down there. But even with all the philosophy and all of the knowledge and all of the wealth, sin was still rampant in the town of Corinth. Alistair Begg says the culture of Corinth was rotten to the core. It was a place of filthy minds, filthy ideals, and filthy ideas. And you kind of see that creeping into the church in Corinth. As you read the book of Corinthians, you have immorality in the church, snobbery in the church, laxity on how people behaved in morality. By chapter 5, we see a guy that's sleeping with his stepmom, and the church has just accepted him in and rejoiced that they are so open-minded to allow that kind of stuff happening within the church. And uh, it would be similar to being a church in Las Vegas today, being a church in Sin City. You, you have an outreach. You have a commission to go out and reach the lost that are, that are down in the guttermost parts of the earth. And as you have that ministry, you're going to be bringing them out and you're going to be seeing gospel transformation take place in people's lives. And sometimes it takes a little while. And so, in fact, there's a book out right now called Uncensored Grace, where a megachurch pastor in Las Vegas uh, today, uh, he has this ministry to people that are cabaret dancers and strippers and things like that. And he goes and he reaches them and he brings them into the church and they hear the message of the gospel and they're being drawn in, but they'll leave church and go back to work that afternoon and then come back to the home fellowship. And so, you know, there's things that would happen in Corinth, like church discipline would be needed and lovingly confronting a brother and helping aid the sanctification process in people's lives. And so Paul in this letter is going to address some of that carnality that has crept into the church. In fact, one of the themes of Corinth is that uh, it's a carnal church. All right. What was that? Verse one that we got through? Congratulate me. Go ahead. That was pretty good. Okay. Woohoo. All right. Only 30 more verses to go. Verse two, to the church of God, which is in Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints and all who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both theirs and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus. 
that you are enriched in everything by him in all utterance and all knowledge. Uh, real quick, you just see that even though this church was uh, on the carnal side, uh, not a perfect church, struggling in a, in a host of different ways, by 2 Corinthians, um, the church has doubted if Paul was even an apostle. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul spends much of the letter defending his apostleship to this church. And yet, even though they were imperfect and they were struggling and there was some filth and there was sanctification that was slowly being worked out, he was thankful for them. Gotta love that. He was thankful for the work that the Lord was doing in their midst. And he says, man, you've been enriched. Uh, that word enriched is theutocrat. It means wealth in spiritual things. Um, in verse seven, it says that they came short in no gift. This was a very rich church, a, a church that spiritually was, was um, you know, very active in the gifts of the spirit. And, and uh, they came short in no gift. In fact, so much so that they actually began abusing the gifts and using them out of order and against scriptural context. And so Paul's going to address that by chapters 12 and 14. While they were uh, just full of spiritual gifts, verse 7 says they were also eagerly waiting the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, verse 8, so that you may be blameless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. You got to love that Paul says, man, What's good about you guys, what's good that's going on, is you're looking up. You are looking up. You're waiting for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're anxiously waiting for him to come, eagerly waiting. And it's that same Lord who will confirm you to the end. In fact, verse 9 says, God is faithful. Do you ever wonder if you're, if you're going to make it, if you're going to stay a Christian for the rest of your life? What's beautiful is that, you know what, God will assist you and give you the power to persevere. It's God who is faithful. When you're faithless, he's faithful. We see in Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 that we can be confident that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Isn't that comforting? Isn't that encouraging? What about in Hebrews chapter 12 where a name for Jesus is that he's the author of our faith? And who's the finisher of our faith? He is. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit in you that you will persevere till the end. He causes it to happen. He's the one that is faithful. Our job, to abide. To abide. Just be with Jesus. Just love Jesus. Just stay in his presence. He works out the perseverance. Verse 10, now I plead with you, brethren. Here comes one of the first little corrections. In fact, later on in the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul says, do I need to come to you with a rod? That means, do I need to give you a spanking? Okay, Paul's words, not mine. Okay, there's correction that needs to take place. There's discipline. And already we start to get into some of the, the little correction, correction, chastening. Um, and he says, I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing and that there be no division among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. He wants the church to have unity, to be speaking the same testimony, that there be no divisions or schisms or tensions or divisions in the church. And you know what? The church will fight or quarrel about anything. And I praise God that, you know, that his spirit has kept unity and peace in this church. Even when we've begun to see little, oh, uh, 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 
praise God. We, we would pray. We would do spiritual warfare. And, and the Lord would quench some of the fires of division. But would you be on your guard, church, against contentions and divisions and fights? Man, if anyone has a, has a problem against this church or the leadership, man, don't be an ear to gossip or murmuring or complaining. We learned that in our reading through the Old Testament during the fast, didn't we? God is not a fan of murmuring and complaining. He will bring judgment again. If you got a problem, and you know what? You will. You'll have problems. We're human beings. We'll fail you. Come and talk to us. All right? Come and talk to us. We'll look through the word. We'll pray. We'll pray for humility and that the Lord will work things out. We'll seek unity. All right? Um, but, uh, but be on the guard against fights and quarrels. Because Paul will tell you that, you know what? The heart of divisions and schisms are. It's pride. It's selfishness. It's sin. In chapter 3, he says it's carnality. And it means you're living in the flesh when you allow those things to take place. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, Paul says that when you've got, since you've got comfort and affection and mercy in Christ Jesus, fulfill my joy by being like-minded with one another, being of the same love and of the same mind. And in context with that, he goes right from there saying, be unified, be unified, be unified, be in one accord, one accord, one accord. And then he goes on to say, don't look out for your own interests. Don't be selfish. All right. But look out for the interests of others. Don't be selfish. And then he goes on to say, because that's what Jesus did. That's the mind that was in Christ Jesus. Jesus didn't look out for his own interests. In fact, he left his rights and privileges of deity and became a man so that he could live among his own creation and be murdered by them so that he could save them. Does it look like Jesus was looking out for his own interests there? He was looking out for the interests of the Father and he was looking out for the interests of the world. All right, so unity. Have the same love, the same mind. Be in one accord, church. Walk in humility. It's what Jesus did. Paul says back there in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, being perfectly joined together. It's a medical term of the day that spoke of the human body. And we read it in Ephesians chapter 4 and in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that we are joined and knit together as the body of Christ. One of you here, you're a finger. One of you here, you're an earlobe. One of you here, you're the ear. One of you, you're the hangy thing in the back of the throat. One of you, you're a giant Adam's apple. One of you, you're the feet. Some of you, you're the hands, all right? We're all parts of the body you notice I noticed I listed all those things because I've got a giant Adam's apple and my hanging ball is swollen. So I don't know what's wrong. It's like infected. Anyways, TMI. But we're all joined and knit together. And so he says in verse 12, or actually verse 11, it's been actually declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, there are a bunch of tattletales, that there are contentions among you. Now this I say that each of you says, I'm of Paul. Or I'm of Apollos, or I'm of Peter, or Cephas, or I'm of Christ. Is Christ divided, verse 13? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And so we see these divisions that would come, and they were man-centered. People would get their eyes on men, they, rather than on Christ. That always brings division. We see it within um, churches, within discipleship groups. We see it within denominations. And how sad that while denominations can be good, they can also bring a lot of division. We can get proud that we're Calvary Chapel and those Baptists, blah, and those 
Foursquare, ah, you know what they do, and blah, blah. And you know what? God's not pleased with the division that the denominations bring. I praise God that there's a work in our community. I love Mike Gaffney at The Ascent. We're friends. You know, I love Chris Cookston over here at the Community Church. I love Dan over at the Christian Church. I love Travis at First Baptist. We were able to do a good Friday service at the Baptist Church. That doesn't happen. I don't know if you know that. But God has worked unity, and he's kept us humble that we're not better than the next. And we pray God would continue to do that in this community. But we don't want to be man-centered or denominational-centered. I'm not of Chuck Smith, believe it or not. All right, and we've gone through conflict in this church, and you know what? I've gotten emails from Portland. What would Chuck Smith say? I'm like, I don't care. <laughs> I love Chuck, all right? I care what the word says. That's my authority, okay? Um, and, and I appreciate the wisdom and things like that. Don't get me wrong, but he's not, I'm not of Chuck, okay? And this church isn't of Chuck. A lot of Calvaries, they're of Chuck. God's graciously, he's, you know, we're not of men. By God, by the grace of God, we're, we're of Christ. And so Paul goes on to say, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I baptized in my own name, starting my own movement. Yes, I also baptized the house of Stephanus. <laughs> You're kind of like, oh, wait, okay, I have that, okay. Yeah, and them too, okay, shoot, okay. <laughs> you have an eraser on that quill and feather? Okay, um, <laughs> Yes, I baptized the house of Stephanus. That was like a whole household. Besides, I don't know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. And, and don't get Paul wrong. Baptism is important. The Great Commission was to go make disciples and baptize. What he's saying is, I wasn't sent to baptize into Paul. I wasn't sent to make my own movement, but to preach the gospel. Now, this in verse 17 is where we're going to spend the, the most of the rest of our, of our study, 17 through 31. We want to look at this theme here of the wisdom of this world versus the wisdom of God. And we'll see that later on in 1 Corinthians as well. And we want to see the contrast between what God thinks is wisdom, the world thinks is foolishness. Okay, And we see that at the end of verse 17, that Paul preached not with the wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ be made of no effect. Now, something that we want to cover today, make no mistake, you don't have to be a great and splendid orator to be useful for the kingdom of God. Okay? You don't have to be a spectacular uh, you know, speech writer or speech deliverer to be useful for the kingdom of God. And I'm not saying that, well, you're good for, you know, cleaning toilets at the church, you know, and that will further the kingdom. It will further the kingdom and you will be good for that, but you're also still useful as a vessel to proclaim the good news. You don't have to have wisdom of words. You don't have to be a college graduate in speech communications, all right? You know, we would know and we would say that some of the most beautiful things we've ever heard in this church 
are from people telling their testimony of how God has called them out of darkness and into his marvelous light, how they were not a people, but they were made a people by the Spirit of God, and they sat up here on stools on a Wednesday night and shared it with the church, and the whole time they could hardly talk, they've got snot coming out their nose, they're bawling and crying, their wives have to take over, and then the husbands have to take over, and, and you know what? And God was glorified, and the kingdom of God was advanced, and then those people would go out into the world and tell their friends what God has done and people are getting saved all right God will use you even if even if you're just poor at speaking he wants to use you not with wisdom of words if that's what we count on if that's what it's all about the appearance of the speaker and how eloquently he speaks I am amazed we're gonna see this later you're gonna catch it all day today this guy can't talk good. And it, I feel like I'm worse as years go on. And it's good because I'm like, God, I need you. I spend more times on my knees on Sunday mornings now because I'm like, I'm getting worse. How is that happening? That is not how you structure a sentence. And you guys hear it. Tammy and Lindsay make fun of me every Sunday afternoon. You know what you said? You, okay, it's good. I need that. Keeps me humble. Okay. And somehow God uses that. And I will speak from experience that God will use you if you will just be faithful to open up your mouth and let his spirit speak out. He's faithful. But if we're looking at men, the cross of Christ will be made of no effect. Verse 18 says, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. And we'll get into that to a second. But I want to look at 17 and 18, those two phrases, the cross. The cross of Christ and the message of the cross. What is that? Now, a lot of you might be thinking, and you're partially right, that the message of the cross is Jesus loved you and died on the cross for your sins. Or Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Or Jesus just died on the cross, all right? That's not a total and complete message of the cross of Christ. The message of the cross of Christ covers really the whole of Scripture, the meta narrative of Scripture that lays out the plan of God for redemption. And it starts out in Genesis. Go figure, we were created to have fellowship with God and walk with Him in the garden in the cool of the day. But we worshiped the created things instead of the Creator. We became idolaters by chapter two of the book. All right? We became idolaters and we worshipped the fruit, the created, pleasure, rather than the one who created it. And from that point on, every single person that ever lived had the nature of rebellion sown into their spirit when they were formed in the womb. So from Genesis, man and woman, every one of you in this room, and myself included, rebelled against God in every way possible. And if you didn't do it outwardly, you did it inwardly. The depravity of man. There's not good, there's not one good, no, not one. There was none that was seeking after God. As much as you think you were, you were not. No man comes to Jesus unless the Father draws him. He called you to himself. And so in your depravity and in your filthiness and in your scum, God started giving you signs and pictures through a sacrificial system in the Old Testament where he would have bulls and goats come 
And they would be slaughtered and their blood would be shed and it would be a gruesome death and they would take the blood and they would splash it against the altar and there would be blood everywhere pouring down the mountain. And, and, and all throughout the Old Testament, all of that would be pointing as people would go to, to try to be cleansed through that blood. It wasn't supposed to cleanse them, it was to show them the one who was going to come and have his blood shed and he was going to cleanse there's one who's coming after all of these blood, the blood of bulls and goats. And he will be a man and he will be spotless and pure and innocent. And he will be slaughtered on your behalf. And so as all of those sacrificial systems in the Old Testament were set up and the law was given and we would see that I can't keep the law, I can't do it, I lied, I coveted, I murdered and if I didn't do it on the outward, I did it inside my heart and Jesus shows us that. If you're an adulterer, if you just lust after a woman in your heart, you committed adultery. You're a murderer if you've hated somebody in your heart or if you've been angry with them in your heart. You know, every man's condemned. Every man's condemned. Every man has fallen short of the glory of God. And Galatians tells us, you know, we rebelled, we were depraved, a sacrificial system was set up to point us towards the one who is going to come. And the Galatians says, when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a virgin, born under the law to fulfill the law. So in just the right time, God draped himself in flesh and became a man and dwelt on the earth for 33 years. He said, I did not come to destroy all of that law, but I came to fulfill that law. And he did. And he never sinned, not once. And then his own creation took him, beat him, whipped him, scourged him, destroyed his body and pinned him to a tree. Is that it? Is that the message of the cross? Is that it? There's more. All right. When he was pinned to the tree, his blood was shed. It dripped down Mount Calvary. And the Bible tells us that that blood is the atonement for our sins. It pays the price, the ransom price to free us from our sin. The blood of the cross gives us life. Now, Jesus didn't stay pinned to the cross they brought him down and they buried him, and he didn't stay buried. But three days later, he rose from the dead. The message of the cross continues that Jesus' sacrifice was accepted. That was proved when he rose from the dead, and it was proved again when he ascended into heaven, and he was allowed into heaven. If he hadn't really fulfilled the law, and he actually had sinned in some secret quiet corner with Mary Magdalene, as a lot of cults out there say that he did, he would not have been allowed to, oh, get out of here, you know. He wouldn't have even risen from the dead. But he proved that he was righteous. He proved that he was who he said he was. When he rose from the dead and he ascended into heaven, is the message of the cross over there? It's not over there. You Christians now have the resurrection put into your account in two ways. Number one, when you die, there will come a day when you will be resurrected from the dead. Not just your spirit, but guess what? Okay, your body will be resurrected and it'll be transformed and it'll be made glorious. But that's the resurrection that Paul and Jesus preached. And that's the resurrection that Jesus experienced. And Paul preached it in Athens and they thought he was loco in la mindo, you know, resurrection from the dead. First of all, is it possible? Second of all, would you even want to? They thought the mind was an, or the body was an encumbrance, but we will be resurrected. 
We'll be resurrected on that day. If you're a Christian, you'll be resurrected towards life and glory. If you're not a Christian, you'll be resurrected too, but to wrath and judgment and an eternity in hell. So, the second way that the resurrection is applied to us is not only will we resurrect one day, but today we have resurrection power over sin, over the flesh, over the world. The same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead dwells in you and there's resurrection power for your life today. The message of the cross continues. Jesus didn't leave us as orphans when he ascended into heaven, but he sent the helper, the parakletos, the one who comes alongside. He's the Holy Spirit. And he dwells in you and is upon you as a Christian and gives you power to be witnesses and to live a life worthy of the blood of the lamb. Okay? That's the message of the cross. Preach that. Okay, when you're preaching to your friends, don't preach something like, you know, Jesus just died to make you better and that's it. You tell them, you know what? I love you. I'm going to speak the truth to you. You're a sinner. You've fallen short of the glory of God. The wrath of God is upon you. You're destined for hell. And I love you enough to tell you that one came to be a substitute for you to take your place on the cross and to take your place under the wrath of God. And he did it and he succeeded. And if you would believe on him and rest on him, you won't perish, but you'll have everlasting life. And the life that you now live in the flesh on this earth, he gives you power to live for his glory. Will you receive him today? Will you surrender to him today? Will you rest in his sacrifice today? Because if you do, his goodness will be put on your shoulders and your sin will be put on his shoulders. The second Corinthians 5.21 says, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's basic and simple accounting. His goodness was put into your account. His perfection Put it into your account. His never sin, never talked back to mama, never looked at bad magazines, never went to movies he wasn't supposed to go to, his never drove over the speed limit, is put into your account, and all of your doing those things is put into his account, and you are made right just like you never sinned. Preach that gospel. Preach that message of the cross. Alistair Begg says, unless, unless we have immersed ourselves in what is essentially apostolic preaching of the gospel that Paul is articulating here, then we will end up sharing with them an amalgamation of pop psychology, me-centered psychology, with a small smattering of religious terminology. If you preach anything else than what was laid out here today, then you're preaching some form of pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You can do it. And you know what? Self-help is no help. We can't do it. We never could do it. And we'll get into that a little bit more. But Paul says this message of the cross, if it's just about a guy's wonderful speaking and wonderful oratory skills, people are going to be looking at him and the cross of Christ has made of no effect. And then he goes on in verse 18 to say the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 
So this message that hopefully you're taking to your schools and to your work and to your neighbors and to the lake and the people that are at the park with you and your kids, you're taking this message and you know what? You tell it to them. And to those that are perishing and, and don't want Christ, it's, it's foolishness. It's, it's, it's uh, you know, tom, tomfoolery, I think is the word I used in the first service. <laughs> tomfoolery. All right. Uh, first of all, the thought that they have to consider that they are sinners and they're not good and they're not going to be okay before God. Well, that's just, that's just, I mean, I'm, I've done some good things, you know? All right. Uh, the fact that, uh, that God became a man, what, you know, the fact that God died, what, the fact that he rose from the dead, mm-mm, you know, and it just goes on and on. And that whole message, is like redonkulous to them. And at the cross, it seemed Jesus lost. At the cross, it seemed Satan had the victory. You've got this Galilean carpenter pinned to a tree, dead. Just, just slaughtered. Just his body just absolutely crushed and broken. Just, just scabbed up on the cross. Dead. Blood and water dripping from a spear wound in his side. Silly. Foolish. The need for blood to wash away sin. One of the leading Jews in Jerusalem right now, building the new temple, thinks that God never desired blood to wash away sins. It's not like he liked a meat lasagna more than he liked a veggie lasagna. I heard him say this. I was in Jerusalem last year, standing 10 feet from him. And then we said, hey, unless there's the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. And for 2,000 years, not a drop of blood has been shed in sacrifice for your sin. And in the word of God that you would say is the word of God, he never said, I don't want the blood. He wants the blood. And the guy goes, yeah, he never said he didn't want it. (laughs) And so for 2,000 years, this guy had to reckon that, man, this this is foolishness. That God would want blood. Life is in the blood. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. It's foolishness. Go talk about blood with people out there in the community. Although the world is obsessed with zombies right now, so you got that going for you. Talk about that. It's foolishness. You know, 1 Corinthians 2, next week we'll see the natural man does not understand the things of the Lord and the wisdom of the Lord. And they can't. It's foolishness to them because they're spiritually discerned. It's foolishness. But to we who are being saved, it's the power of God. And maybe you came in that door and you weren't saved and you've been hearing this and all of a sudden you're like, I could totally see how that's stupid and I thought it was stupid, but now the Holy Spirit's talking to me and this is powerful. All this bit about the suffering Savior seems like it actually happened once. That happened for me. That's the spirit of God knocking on the door of your heart. He wants in. To we who are being saved, there's power in the cross. We hang crosses up in the church because we love Golgotha. We love Mount Calvary. We love the wooden implement where the son of God laid his life down. The implement itself isn't what's beautiful. It's the action of love that happened there. There's healing at the cross. Lead me to the cross where your love poured out, we sing. Oh, precious is the flow 
That washed me white as snow, we sing. A song in high school that I used to sing, and I was never very good at it because it had this funky key change in the chorus. But it went like this. I know a place, a wonderful place, where accused and condemned find mercy and grace. Where the wrongs we have done and the wrongs done to us were nailed there with him, there on the cross. Have you ever been accused? Have you ever just been shown your sin and your mouth has to shut because you know you're guilty? We have that Barnes Butte Reservoir right behind our house and the trail to get down to it is right by our house and anyone that walks on it is trespassing. Um, and, you know, I've, I've trespassed a few times on it. And, but like 15 high school kids were down at the reservoir swimming and fishing and all this stuff. And, um, you know, Lindsay and I are like, that's not very good, you know? And pretty soon the cops show up and the policeman comes up right by our deck and he starts waiting for these kids to come up. And then on the other end, the sheriffs come burning in on Adam's property back there doing cookies and stuff and then they get out and all these kids are like ah you know and like some kids go running up to my house and some kids start running and and uh and the cop's like man this is my favorite part you know <laughs> and these kids get there and they get up the hill and they're like oh gosh you know because they knew they'd sinned they knew they were in trouble and you've been there and i've been there caught red-handed condemned accused we come to the cross in that moment and there's mercy and there's grace. And all the punishment for our wrongs were nailed there with him on the cross. It's foolishness to the world, but to we who need a whole lot of redemption, it's power, huh? Verse 19, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. That's from Isaiah 29, uh, verse 20, where is the wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the disputer of this age? This is Paul's version of saying, what, 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 what? Okay, that's what he's saying. Nobody understands what, okay. I read it on the Urban Dictionary. Um, yeah, I will destroy, but what he's saying is, hey, you've got the philosophers of this age, the wise men, the debaters, the guys that go to the debates and stand up and exalt themselves against God I want to know where they are because God will make them foolish and their wisdom foolish in comparison to what he has laid out. Go on YouTube and watch some good old fashioned debates between creationists and evolutionists. And I've got a few good ones for you that are, they're done in love. If, if it's not done in love, it doesn't matter. And you're just as bad as the evolutionist. All right. It's got to be done in love with the hopes to gain these souls. But you've got the disputer of this age. You've got the evolutionist or you've got the debater, the liberal theologian. You've got the evolutionist who, be who believes that all of this came from a ball of mass that was floating through space that just <laughs> throughout the world, right? And somehow on one of those little things, there was like a puddle formed. And inside that puddle, a little amoeba started to grow. And he was a cute little amoeba when he started out. And as that amoeba is doing backstrokes through the water, he scratches his rear end on a rock. <laughs> that wound festers and a leg grows out. He does that four more times and he's got himself four legs. Okay, three more times. Four legs, right? So he decides to make a journey out of the puddle. From the goo to the zoo to you is what I'm getting at here. 
gets a sunburn on his forehead, that sunburn turns into a freckle, the freckle turns into a brain, and the next thing you know, he's designing nuclear fusion and stealth bombers. Okay? Slightly on the, the foolishness side, and I do say that in humility, I do say that in love, because these, these guys are smart, and yet they've exalted themselves against God in, in, in the whole of Scripture. Psalm 14, 1 says that the fool says in his heart, there's no God. And you go to the, the schools today and you go into those classes and the professor says, ball of mass floating through space, blows up, here we are. And you say, sir, may I ask, the logical question in the room that everyone's thinking is where did that ball of mass come from? And you know what the professor will say? I don't know. Well, what, sir, what's your theory on where this ball of mass came from? I do not have a theory. Well, what is everybody else's theories? We do not have anything. Could you stop asking questions, you know? All right. May I present a theory that intelligent design by the intelligent designer created all of this for his glory. And he loved it so much that even when it rebelled against him, he came and became one of the created things and died by his created things in order to redeem his created things. And God makes the wisdom of this age foolish. I encourage you to go to apologetics.com or to YouTube, Martin Lloyd-Jones or William Lane Craig, Lee Strobel, Ken Ham from Answers in Genesis. These apologists, these guys that debate and reason with people um, with truth and in love. Verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Now, I love this verse, and I had to read it like six times to really appreciate it. What it's saying is, in that God's infinite understanding, he knew that the world's corrupt knowledge and wisdom system would reject such a message of a suffering savior making atonement for trespasses and sin, so God did it anyways. He knew that worldly wisdom would think it's ridiculous, and he said, you know what, that's how I get glory. By accomplishing great things through the ridiculous. And he did it. That's his method of salvation. The only way of salvation. And he is glorified when the billions of people in world history have been convicted of their sin by the Holy Spirit. And they saw that they were unable to keep the righteous standards of the law. They then saw the redemption that comes through the blood of the Son of God laying down his life, being sacrificed in substitution for them. They believe that message, and that message alone, I might add, which is also foolishness to the world, that there's one lone message, and they're saved. They rest in that message, they rest in that hope, and they're saved. What the complexity of human wisdom claims for itself to deliver, it cannot deliver. But what the simplicity of the gospel says it'll deliver, it delivers every time. Verse 22, for Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. Isn't that true? In the gospels, the Jews were saying, teacher, show us a sign. Show us a sign. Show us a sign. Hey, a wicked and perverse and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. They wanted a magic trick, you know, so that they could follow him, and they wouldn't follow him anyways. And he says, I'll give you a sign, one sign, the sign of, the son of, the sign of Jonah, 
That just as the son of man, or I'm sorry, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, the son of man will be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. What was that sign? The resurrection. Here's your sign, is what Jesus is saying. All rise from the dead. He rose from the dead, and the Jews still reject him uh, to this day. The majority of the Jews, that is. Jews seek after a sign. The, the Greeks want some kind of a, of a word of wisdom. But, verse 23, we preach Christ crucified. This is encouraging to me because I don't have to be the genius or the philosopher or have every answer. What I need to know, and Paul will say it later, I just need to know Christ and him crucified. Speak the message of the gospel that you've learned today. To the Jews, verse 23, it's a stumbling block. And to the Greeks, it's foolishness. In modern day vernacular, to the people who are seeking some kind of miracle, they're going to be stumbled because you're not going to give them a miracle except the miracle of redemption. And to the Greek of our age, they want some kind of profound, (laughs) there you go, proving my own point today, some kind of profound, you know, wise word, and you're going to give them blood and atonement. And that's their sign. And it's powerful. It's a stumbling block. In the Greek, that's scandal on, or it's a scandal to them. Verse 24, to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Didn't I tell you guys at the beginning of the service to underline or circle every time you see the word power in these passages? Because it's here that we're seeing that the power doesn't come from our appearance or our abilities or anything in us. It comes from the message and the one who's given us the message. Do you guys remember Romans chapter 1 verse 16? For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. What's the power of salvation? Self-help groups? It's the word. It's the message itself, the gospel, the good news that's been laid out this morning. It is the power. It is the wisdom of God. Colossians 2.3 says, In Jesus is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He is much more wise than you could ever imagine in your worldly wisdom. Verse 25, Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, And the weakness of God is stronger than men. What Paul is using here is some dramatic irony, all right, saying hypothetically, let's say God could be weak, okay? And God on his worst day of being a clown, a fool, a chump, is immeasurably more sensible, sage, and shrewd than the Stephen Hawking that we've got to offer on this side of eternity, You know, last night I was looking up smartest people in the world and I found the top 10 and Stephen Hawking was like number one, you know, he's got all these best-selling books and he's like figured out all this stuff. And then you kind of go through and and like six of these 10 are like world champion chess players. And that's like how they got their notoriety, you know, like great IQs and they're just awesome at this board game. And it's like, and Jesus is stupid. Okay. Um, just kidding, that wasn't very nice. But, you know, these people are, are geniuses. You've got guys that are Doogie Housers, you know, and by the age of two, one of them knew four different languages. By the age of six, he was like um, writing audits for Cambridge University or another university of that sort, Oxford or something. And, uh, and by the time he was 24, he's a professor at UCLA, you know, and, and just youngest professor they've ever had. And, and we would bring these guys, Stephen Hawking and Kim Ung Jong and all these other guys, smart guys, and we would say, 
on their best day, God is still supremely more intelligent and knows what he's doing if he ever had a worse day, but he doesn't have a worse day. You guys get it? Okay, verse 26. Now we get to bring some application to this. You see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many nobled are called. Three times here we're going to see the word called, called, called. God selects, God chooses, God elects. You know, he, he's called you to come out of darkness today. And right now he's calling. He's saying, come out of darkness into the marvelous light. Look at what I've provided for you. Would you respond to him? Do you sense his calling today? Revelation says, Jesus says, behold, I knock at the door of your heart. And if anyone will hear and open that door, I will come in and I will dine with him and he with me. He calls and the ones that he calls, it says many of those that are called are not very wise. Not that he doesn't call any wise, but look around. Okay, um, most aren't wise is, is the way we could read that. That is outstanding in intelligence, you know, the scholar and the professor and the one that's just skilled in all life life skills, you know. He doesn't call many wise or many mighty influential men who are strong and powerful people of authority. And we see that in our culture. There's not like a ton of United States senators that are like sold out on fire for Jesus Christ. You know, in our other mighty places in the world, there's not a ton of athletes that are Christians. And there are some. It's not that there aren't any. It's that there's not many. All right. You look at Hollywood, you know, it's like, who's saved there? Like Kirk Cameron, I think, and that's it. We need to pray for that guy because he's on a mission, right? To save the rest of the cast of Growing Pains, and I think he's like on a roll. But God doesn't call many mighty just of the world. He uses ordinary people. He doesn't just call all nobility, well-born, gallant, and high-ranking in life. He uses ordinary people, and we see that here. And it's encouraging to me. I'm very ordinary. It's encouraging to you, I'm sure. Some of you are ordinary, others not so much. Verse 27, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the mighty. He uses foolish things. It's the word moros in the Greek. Dull, stupid, and clowns. And he uses the dull one to absolutely school the wise individual. Sometimes we feel like we're too dull or too dumb to be able to be of any good for the kingdom of God, to say anything that would make sense to our neighbor. It's not true. God uses. Do you believe it? Do you believe the word of God this morning? Then he will use you. Unless you're a genius, then he's not going to use you. I'm sorry. In Acts chapter 4, verse 33, Peter and John are out there in the temple, and they're like witnessing and telling everybody about Jesus, and thousands of people are getting saved. And the educated religious leaders looked out at them and it says there in Acts 4.33, they saw the boldness, boldness of Peter and John and perceived their uneducated and untrained men. They're fishermen from Galilee. They're wearing, you know, whatever fishermen wear, fishnet stockings and all that good stuff. Uh, and they, they don't none talk good, okay? They're uneducated men, uneducated, okay? <laughs> Proving my own point again. But then it says... And they perceived that, he, that they had been with Jesus. Where did the power come from in the, in the lives of these men? 
being with Jesus, being with the living word. God uses ordinary people to accomplish extraordinary things for him. Those who are weak, the word here says, without strength, helpless, sick, unimpressive, they will absolutely own the Colossus. So God's word says. They will put to shame. It means curse vehemently. That's what's going to happen. People try to rise up against the gospel and use as dinky little people like us to put to shame these people and to glorify the name of Christ. Verse 28, he uses the base things of the world. These don't get much worse and more insignificant than that. You know, base things. And the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. He uses those that are insignificant, not noble, not from an impressive family, not with a great reputation. Just pretty general. You know, if he were to look at us, he's like, yeah, you are not. <laughs> but I'm going to use you to put to shame those that are. All right? I love the way God works. He does that in Moses' life. Moses is out there herding sheep, you know, for 40 years. And God comes and appears to him and says, I'm going to use you to bring my people out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said, oh my Lord, I am not eloquent. I'm not eloquent. I'm slow of speech and slow of tongue. Nobody wants to hear that. And so the Lord says to him, who has made your mouth? <laughs> who puts the words in your mouth? I want to know right now. I do. And he says, I will be with you. Moses kept complaining. He ended up having to use his brother along with him because he was a scaredy cat. Point is, who made your mouth? The one who's going to be in your mouth. The one who's going to speak for you when you'll just open up. Jeremiah himself had the, the unimpressive feature of being a youth. And when he's called by the Lord and the Lord says, I knew you in your mother's womb. When you in your mama's womb, I formed you. Mother's Day, right? There's your Mother's Day message for you right there. Everyone write that down. When you were in your mother's womb, I knew you. I formed you and I've called you to be a prophet to the nation. And Jeremiah says, oh, Lord God, I can't speak. I am a youth. And the Lord says, don't say I am a youth. You will go to whomever I send you. Whatever I command you, you will speak. Don't be afraid of their faces. I'm with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Do you know youth in this room that God wants to use you? If you're under, if you're a high school or under, will you raise your hand right now? High school or under in this room? Look around, people, look around. God wants to use the youth. Will you pray for these? I was part of a youth group that we were just us and we got on fire for Jesus and loved Jesus and, and kids started inviting their parents to church. Kids invited their parents to church. Parents that were like divorcing each other came to church because a significant change had happened in their kids and they get saved and they become a radical part of the church. Revival happened in Corvallis in the late 90s through my youth group. The Lord used us and he can use that in this town. If you are a youth, listen to me. I'm not that much older than you, okay? Let yourself be a vessel. Don't say, I'm just a youth. All right? God will use you greater than you ever could imagine, and he will get all the glory. When a 16-year-old kid goes through his school and just starts preaching the gospel and, and lighting kids on fire for the, for the name of Christ, God gets the glory there. 
that a kid would open his mouth up about God. Paul tells Timothy, don't let anyone despise your youth, but be an example in love and in purity and in faith and in works. David, we know his story. He's kind of the epitome of this chapter. He was a young shepherd boy, weak, obscure, out in the field by himself, like, no, Daisy, don't eat that plant. You know, like, man, this is lame, you know. And his brothers are all out fighting battles, and he's like tending the sheep, you know. And his dad's like, hey, take this bread and cheese out to the battlefield. Okay, this is awesome. Yeah. Get to get away from the sheep now. And he goes out there and he sees a Philistine who for days and days and days had come out and would challenge the Israelites. Everyone was terrified of him. He's like 10 feet tall and bulletproof. He's got like big old honking armor on him. He's like the Abrams tank of the day. And no one wants to challenge him. And he would come out and he would defy God and challenge Israel. And David gets there, hears it, and said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he would challenge the armies of the living God? Let me at him. And he goes to the king to say, I'm going to do it. And the king says, you can't, you're a youth. What a lie from Satan. And David says, you know what? When I was watching my little lammies, a lion or a bear would come. I'd grab him by the beard and I'd stab him in the neck. Okay? And I'm going to do that to that guy. Do you like a little twist there? That's what they do in like Delta Force, okay? All right? So he goes out there. This is a long story short, by the way. And Goliath sees him and he's like, oh, 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 okay. He laughs at him and he's insulted. He says, what am I, a dog that you're throwing sticks to me? And David says, shut your mouth. He says, you come to me with a sword and a shield and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord God of Israel, prepare to die. Takes five stones, puts one of them in the little thingy. One shot to the head. Okay, it was more like this. Okay, one shot to the head. Homeboy's dead. And then David goes, takes Goliath's sword and chops his head off with it. All right? God uses the little shepherd boys with the lammies because he will get all of the glory. Yeah, youth. Paul wasn't very impressive. In a writing about 100 years after he was around, uh, it's called the Acts of Paul and Thesea, a short man, or they wrote about Paul, that he was a short man under five feet tall with a protruding pot belly, bow-legged with a long hooked nose, bulging eyes, bald, and spoke with a high squeaky voice. That's Paul the Apostle, okay, according to some history, all right? And God used that guy, radically, to transform the world. Dwight L. Moody, in, in more modern-day history, the late 1800s, he was a shoe salesman who had a map on his wall of, of the world, and he was burning for lost souls. And God called him out of being a shoe salesman to be one of the leading evangelists in the Great Awakening. And he was called to go over to Cambridge and to speak. And when the senior class of Cambridge heard that D.L. Moody, this honky from Chicago, was going to come and speak, they said, we aren't going to let this guy who just brutalizes the English language come in here and make a fool of us. We're going to mock him the whole time he's talking. And as he starts speaking, he starts saying this, young men, don't ever think that God don't love you. He do. Young men, don't ever think that God don't love you. He do. 
And there at Cambridge, many of the young men of the senior class yielded their lives to Christ because they heard from a foolish guy, God loves you. Why does God work in this way? In verse 29, we have the answer. It's so that no flesh would glory in his presence. If God just used a bunch of stallions, you know, a bunch of men with just six packs and bulging biceps and flowing manes, you know, just could speak and just capture the hearts, then they would get the glory and not him. He gets all the glory because these guys are nothing. The power is not in you. The might's not in you. The beauty is not in you. It's in the gospel itself. It's in the Holy Spirit who's in you. It's in spending time in his presence. Gideon was the weakest in his father's house. The whole country around him in Israel is worshiping idols and bands of raiders would come down and take all of their crops. And so Gideon is a young man and he's threshing floor in a, he's, he's threshing wheat in a hiding place and an angel of the Lord comes to him to speak to him to call him up to be a deliverer, a judge for Israel. And the Lord says, uh, God is with you, you mighty man of valor. And there he is like hiding, like threshing wheat so the raiders don't get him, you know. It's hot, it's sweaty, it's sticky, it's itchy, it's chaff all over him. God is with you, you mighty man of valor. And then he goes, if God's with us, then why are we going through all this? That's the mighty man of valor that God uses. And then the Lord says to him, uh, he goes on to say, hey, go in this might of yours, because I'm going to use that, right? And so Gideon calls an army together, 32,000 men, and the Lord says, it's too many people. You guys would take the glory of the victory for yourselves, he says, tell everyone who's afraid and wants to be with their wives to go home. Anyone who's afraid and wants to be with their wives, go home. 20,000 people go home. <laughs> oh, shoot. And the Lord says, it's still too many. And you guys will claim the glory for yourselves. Uh, and he takes them to the springs there in Israel. And, and he says, all right, whoever drinks water this way by, you know, lifting the water up to their hands, you know, uh, tell them uh, up to their mouth, tell them to go home. Because uh, those guys are soldiers. They know to like keep their hand on their sword and to be lapping water, you know, to drink water like this. And, and he says, anyone who's at the water and they're all, <laughs> you know, I'm going to use them. Those are the ones I'm going to use, right? 300 guys are the ones that are just like, <laughs> I'm so thirsty right now. What, I'm going to go to battle? <laughs> you know, those are called Gideon's 300. God used them. To get all the glory when the Midianites were slaughtered in their, in their numerous numbers. God gets the glory. Billy Graham, on the back of his book, Just As I Am, says this. I've often said that the first thing I'm going to do when I get to heaven is to ask, why me, Lord? Why did you choose a farm boy from North Carolina to preach to so many people that have such a wonderful team of associates and to have uh, a part of what you're going to do in the latter half of the 20th century? I've thought about that question a great deal, but I know also that only God knows the answer. Why does God use farm boys from North Carolina? So that no flesh will glory in his presence, that he will get all of the glory. Why does God use a farm boy from Bonanza, Oregon? All right, because he'll get all the glory. I mean, you're looking at a guy that his whole life, people have said, sit up straight. Why? You know, when I was a kid, my mouth wasn't big enough for my teeth. All right. Third grade picture. I almost showed it to you today. I'm just like, her, you know, couple that with an Adam's apple that just won't stop. In middle school, I was called Quasimodo. 
the hunchback of Notre Dame or Notre Dame or wherever that is. Uh, I was called mosquito eyes for my bulging eyes, all right? And, it, and not popular in my school or anything like that. And if God can use me, Amen. he can use you. When I was a little farm boy kid, I stood the fuel tanks at our farm with a motorcycle helmet on that I found. <laughs> you know, shiny blue. Remember the glittery helmets? They're like kind of glittery looking. I have a picture of me doing this. I'm standing at the fuel tanks. And when the hired men would come in to fuel up their equipment, I'd tell them about Jesus. And, and these guys would go to my dad, like, what's up with your kid? He, like, loves Jesus. And I'm like, he loves you. Hey! <laughs> it's true. You know me. You know that's true. And who gets the glory? God. You know, you've heard me mumble and fumble and bumble today and every other day that you've ever come to this church. And so the glory will be God's and God's alone. Anything else I need to tell you guys? It's a good story, yeah. Let's close, all right? Worship team come up, and we're right on schedule with what we were at for first service, so maybe I didn't learn anything. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Get this, you might be the lame and the weak and the base, but he wasn't and he isn't. And he gave all of his wisdom and power and might of the living God, the creator to you. In the gospel, you have become power and might and strength. It's not you. Don't get a big head. It's him. He gave you that by his grace. That is, that as is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. So we're going to glory in the Lord. We're going to take communion right now. And we're going to remember the blood and the body of Jesus that was spilled and broken in your place. And so when you take the bread and the cup, you just thank Jesus for what he's done. Maybe some of you, you've never taken communion before. Or when you came in these doors, you weren't born again. But you've heard the gospel. You've heard the good news. You've heard the message of the cross. And you've said today, it's not foolishness. It is power. And I want it. And right now where you're at, you can respond by resting in what Jesus has done. You can come up to the table and get these elements that represent blood and the body of Jesus being spilled and crushed for you. And you can take it into yourself and just say, Lord, come into me. I receive in the most inner parts of my being what you've done. And you can be born again, the Bible says. You'll be given a new heart, a new mind and a life that will love Jesus and want to be used for his purposes. And when we come to the table today, we also remember all of his obedience and all of his strength and all of his might, all of his power that was poured out on us. He's made available for us today. Come to the table, and then we'll honor the moms after that. It's come during this last worship song. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754, or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.